The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tēnā koutou katoa, this is Toby Manhire with the latest in our special podcast as part of the Gone By Lunchtime Empire, interviews with leaders of the political parties. A few days ago, David Seymour, the leader of the ACT Party, came in for a conversation and we covered a bunch of territory, including uh, Nelson Mandela and um, race relations and the treaty and ACT's housing policy and whether or not it was a NIMBY's charter. David Seymour accused me of being in the pocket of Judith Collins, which was curious. Also, he really didn't love the mentions of Winston Peters, and there are quite a few mentions of Winston Peters over the course of the podcast, so um, there's a there's a content warning for you <laughs> if it's not for you. We also talked about the candidates that have withdrawn from ACT, uh, as well as Prefu, a uh, bunch of other things, usual story. Here it is. Thanks to Sam Robinson for recording, producing, and all that. Kia ora, David Seymour. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, exciting week, Prefu week, always uh, fun. What is that? What did what did what, what did the numbers say to you when you looked at them in terms of your policy? Um, it, it, first of all, what does it mean for New Zealand? It's it's part of a long, slow slip. So it's not a catastrophe in the sense that you know there's going to be a run on the dollar and New Zealand's going to sort of have to get bailed out by the rest of the world. Um, but it does show that. Basically, even two years after COVID, in fact, even three, four, five years after COVID, New Zealand is going to be borrowing money and paying large amounts of interest on what it's borrowed to keep the party going. Uh, there's no sort of hope or aspiration that um, the country starts paying its way. And you, you see that in the trade deficit, that what New Zealanders are buying and consuming is maybe first world. But there's a deficit in terms of what we sell to the rest of the world, and, and you can only do that for so long. So um, it's more the lack of sustainability. It's that long, slow slip, and, so and really the lack of hope that, and aspiration. More concerned about that than the debt to GDP, which is which is relatively modest compared to similar countries. No, um, you can make all sorts of arguments about what the right debt to GDP measure is, and once you take all of New Zealand's indebtedness, it's it's not such a pretty picture. Um, it's also true that you know this government actually changed the way that they measure debt to, to GDP, which mm. um, I think is unfortunate. However, um, my point is that we're not we're, we're putting aside the position of debt to GDP. 
things are getting worse. You don't see a country that is actually raising productivity and paying its way and and, and really giving giving hope. It's it's almost a, a sort of a um, a long goodbye. And that 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 was the overall um, I guess tenor of of the uh, prefu. Um, and I think we could you know do a lot more better than that and have a lot more hope than that. You put out your alternative budget commendably early, um, mm. at, uh, uh, as, the, as the Greens did, really. Now what do you do? Do you go back and chuck all these new numbers into the spreadsheet and make a few difficult decisions? Yeah, that's right. So if you look at compared with the budget update, that you know, it was only six months ago or so, mm-hmm. um, this is, in fact, less than this, four months ago, um, things have got substantially worse. The government is spending, is tracking higher. Inflation looks like it will stay higher for longer. Um, the tax take is going to be lower. So, you know, unemployment is higher. So that means there's going to be more people on, on benefits. So that, that costs more money from a um, government point of view. So all of the numbers are kind of harder. And so our basic view is reduce expenditure. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that government's currently doing that I don't think it needs to do. I don't think people would miss. Uh, actually spend more money in, in a few select areas where actually I think the government's doing enough or doing well enough. Um, and then uh, with the remainder, reduce people's taxes. Um, you know, that that's our basic proposition. And I think we'll still have something like that. But obviously, when new numbers come out, you've got to check um, what, what that looks like. Do you think in terms of Nationals' uh, tax plan, and they, they haven't put out their their fiscal plan yet. Do you think that they need to revisit that in light of the prefer? Um, well, of course, you know the claim of their tax plan is that it doesn't really change much because they're really not reducing much expenditure at all. I mean, you know, you've got 140 billion odd dollars of government spending. They're promising to reduce about a billion of that. So they're, they're basically spending the same. Um, and then they're cutting taxes somewhat, but they're also raising other taxes. So um, because it's a relatively small adjustment in, in just about every way, mm. um, then then they might still get away with it. But I, I haven't looked at their numbers. I've you know, <laughs> already got one party to, to look after. I, I don't know if I can take on a second one. Um, all right. Okay. So you're turning down the opportunity to lead the National Party at this point. It's good to have that on the record. Hey, uh, the other... A lot of people ask, you know. They... <laughs> From within the National Caucus, you mean? Um, I don't know. But the ones in the caucus are a bit more discreet, but, um, but some, of, some, of, some of the other national people have over the years, yeah. Okay. The, um, the poll that came out on Monday night, the News Hub read, what was your gut response to that? Be honest. Your gut response when you see those numbers, was it, oh, shit, we've dropped by two points? Or was it, or was it hooray, no. the right block, the putative National Act Coalition has gone up by two points and New Zealand first are out of the picture? Um, well, really none of the above because what you've got to remember is that Reid Research's last poll was like three months ago. Yes. Um, and so when you say you've dropped two points, I mean, there was a Reid Research poll in what, I don't know, May, there's one in September, and those two points different. In between that, um, there's been a whole lot of polls, some of which have had act as high as 18 uh, just last week, um, others are on 14, um, others on 12, um, and, and then their one comes along at 10. I think the last TV1 one was at 13. So 
Uh, I mean, you wouldn't really read a lot into that one number. What does um, your own internal polling say? 13. 13? Mm. Okay. Has it been reasonably consistent around that? You haven't it's seen been, any trouble? Uh, like, I, I actually want to check that they're actually doing the poll every week because it's been 13, 13, 13. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, I don't know. <laughs> what should we tell them this week? 13, send the bill. Um, no, I, I think that the people doing that, that, that polling for us are serious people. Does so. your poll have New Zealand first over five? No. No, they're pretty consistently below, um, and you know a lot of people go on and they want to talk it up. But at the end of the day, if if your basic proposition is everything's terrible, um, I'm the guy that made it that way, but I'll also be the guy to fix it. It's you know, it's not a very credible proposition. Mm. That, that's their underlying problem. What's your assessment of the? What's your assessment of the political record, the political character of the Right Honourable Winston Peters? Um, it's. It's actually really sad. I, I mean, you know, the guy's got considerable natural talents um, and he's given it a long period of time. But at the end of that, you, you sort of say, well, you, you know, if you were sort of writing a history book and you'd say, okay, now I'm going to summarise what this guy did to, to leave New Zealand a better place. I mean, If the seats land, the seats land at uh, 59 for National and Act and and then New Zealand First have, that is, seems to be a vote for change. Do you put a peg on your nose and say, let's find a way to muck in and make it work with those three parties? Um, you know, I, I think it's obviously true, but I think the other thing is it's just the the the, the fact that, you know, in, in this in this interview and so many others, the, the press are so keen to fixate on, on one hypothetical mm. Um I think people actually have bigger concerns. I mean, there's people out there saying, like, but it's not, it's not, mm. a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a mm. fanciful hypothesis, mm. is it? Mm. I mean, we've seen it before. That's one of the mm. reasons that those questions are asked. Yeah, sure, but I mean, I just, I just noticed that <laughs> the amount of emphasis you put on it is, it's my criticism. Um, I think really what people are, are saying is, we got to climb out of this hole. So that's when I say about the prefer. It feels like we're borrowing money, marking time to stand still. Um, you know, the questions I had: Do you raise productivity? You know, how do you get the regulatory state to keep people safe from major harms, but also not tie up so much of people's time in compliance rather than production? You know, how do we make sure that we've got an education system that that actually means a poor kid with not much advantage at birth can end up, you know, going to one of the world's top universities if they've got the the talent? I I don't think that in terms of living standards and social mobility. Or even just public safety or building enough homes. I mean, there's there's so many substantial problems that New Zealand has right now. Those are the ones that I, I think this election really needs to address because we only get a chance to address these issues in a, in a really you know publicly involved way um, you know, once every three years. Yeah, great. So you've said that, um, but will you work with Winston Peters if the numbers fall that way? There you go again. So I did actually answer well, that. You didn't answer well, that. Well, I, I actually did you answer answered that. You get proposed an alternative question and gave a, a, a very eloquent answer to it. If you if you want to replay the tape and people can, I I say well obviously that would be the case, but you know let's move on. And then you by the way I think the media overemphasises the question, then you prove my point. <laughs> so. Okay, so 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 I, forgive me if I missed it. Your answer was yes. If it comes to it, of course. If it comes, if you if you need to make a government work, then you make it work. But 
I just make the point that we're not going to sit around the cabinet table with this clown. I mean, there's so many reasons uh, why you wouldn't trust them. Um, and so you end up with some sort of governing arrangement. But like I say, it's not very likely. Um, it's actually hypothetical. And um, I think that, um, you know, people spend far too much time over-egging it. And I've, I find that actually in itself quite sad mm -hmm. because even, you know, the, an outfit like the spin-off, which I view as a, you know, a place that's actually there for some healthy, honest discussion and debate, um, here we are again. Let's talk about your um, launch coming up in a few days um, at the Civic. Mm. I I was at your, um, what did you call it, the uh, election year rally, I think. Real change now. Um, at the Sky City Theatre. That's right. You had a you had a bright yellow Suzuki Swift driving onto stage. How are you going to top that at the Civic? <laughs> um, it's the problem with, with having so many vehicles involved in your campaign, isn't it? Um, You're going to bus. You never know. That it, maybe Big Pinky will drive onto the stage. We don't know. I um, I wanted to offer a suggestion. Sure. I went to the Civic some years ago with my children to see Mary Poppins, and Mary Poppins went on a, like a flywire from oh, the back like of the it. circle. I like it, yeah. The, so, the, so the technology is there. Is that something that you might do? Um, well, now you've mentioned it, you know. You've got maybe you've got squillions on the war chest, you know. You could maybe that's the, the best. Maybe that the best use of our money maybe is, is sending me in on a flying fox. And then I've got a follow-up question: Would Mary Poppins vote for the Act Party? <laughs> Well, you never know. I mean, we're against a sugar tax, so um, that's mm. certainly right. something that, okay. that, that she would probably support. I don't think she would want a sugar tax because okay. otherwise she wouldn't be able to get the medicine to go down. Okay, that's good. My my, And then my, my rejoinder is that that means that you're in favour of a nanny state. Well, you know, but she might be a single-issue voter. I mean, she might she might be tolerant of our liberalism, the, the fact that we're pro-choice on euthanasia and abortion and free speech and that we're live-and-let-live type people. She might be able to just sort of ignore all of that and, and be a single-issue voter on the sugar tax, which I suspect she is. Mm, she'd just be banging on asking annoying questions about Winston Peters probably, wouldn't she, Mary Poppins? No, I think I think she'd have a lot more focus than you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The, this, this kind of um, all the, 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 the dead people who would or wouldn't vote for ACT, which, you know, is kind of tipped <laughs> over into absurdism, and that's fine. But on the Mandela thing, yeah. just want to just pull you up on that. The, the, he was uh, someone who fought really hard, very clearly, to overcome this appalling apartheid system. Mm. No one would argue with that. No one reasonable would argue with that. But he also, once, he, once the ANC came to power, defended affirmative action as, in his words, were affirmative action as corrective action. So I wanted to sort of just talk about that briefly because you're opposed to affirmative action on a point of principle. 
What about if affirmative action is understood as correcting a sort of historic systemic injustice in terms mm. of returning things to a level playing field? Do you see any value in that argument? Uh, I do, but it's a bit more complicated than you're laying out. So, for example, um, ECRA's always supported uh, the treaty settlement process. So, mm -hmm. you know, that is uh, specifically returning um, property to people that was wrongfully taken and trying to, to redress past wrongs. So, you know, we, we don't have a problem with that. Um, we don't have a problem. In fact, we support the idea of equal opportunity. I think the point that we make is that Actually, it's it's critical um, that we start identifying who are the people that have the greatest need. And I'll just give you an example. I saw um, Calvin Davis stand up in Parliament and say, you know, it's not fair that why should I die seven years earlier because I'm Maori? And I, I was just sitting there thinking, mate, you earn $300,000 a year. You know, you have a degree. If you don't mind me saying, you're in pretty good shape for a man of your age. Um, I don't think it works like that. Like, not people are not just a race. So mm. I just make the point that you, know, you can do affirmative action, but the question is why you choose to make race every, everything and, and actually categorise. And there's this unhealthy obsession in New Zealand with saying, you know, racial categorisation is the way that we group people. Um, the, the final point I'd make, and this is where I suspect Mandela um, would be on, on my side of this argument, is that a lot of what is happening at the moment under the treaty has got nothing to do with specific property rights or equity or affirmative action. It is this idea that you have a different set of rights purely because you are tangata whenua as opposed to tangata tiriti, so you must be consulted on this or that and have, as Willie Jackson said in Parliament a couple of weeks ago, separate rights. Um, so that's the area that we're opposed to. So we're not opposed to specific settlements around specific issues where, you know, this particular pass site was attacked in 1862 and therefore, you know, that's, we understand that. That's a specific issue, not about race, but about events and people. Um, then uh, we understand the idea of equal opportunity. We think that actually labour has really failed, particularly in areas like education, to give equal opportunity. We just don't think that race is the way to categorise people when you're trying to level things up. Um, and then third, when it comes to the way the treaty has been interpreted um, as really giving people in perpetuity, regardless of how well they're doing or not, regardless of any specific connection to any specific events, a different role in society forever, that's what we're opposed to, and I suspect that Nelson would be too. Mm. I mean, I guess the, the treaty stuff is, it overlaps. You got a bit more than you bargained it's, for it's, there, it's, didn't you? It's, it's a slightly <laughs> separate, well, I wanted to talk about that too, because, I mean, it is the, you know, the Association of Consumer and Taxpayers, I mean, you guys have, um, uh, believe strongly in contract law, right? And that's one way of looking at the, the treaty in terms of its placement in our constitutional arrangements. This is a contract between two peoples. You wouldn't... If you had a contract dispute, that's something you take through the courts, isn't it, rather than to a referendum, which is what you're proposing. Mm. I'm not sure, though, that the contract uh, actually impose, actually applies um, a different set of rights to people based on race forever. You know, mm. when, when I heard Jacinda Ardern say it's a partnership between races, I'm, I'm not quite sure that's right. Um, you know, what the contract guaranteed 
um, was the same rights and duties to all people, actually the same rights and duties of, as citizens of England at that time, uh, which of course has evolved through parliamentary lawmaking over time. So, you know, you can argue that the, the courts should be the only arbiters of what the treaty means for 140, 180, 183 years now. Um, I would argue that actually uh, the ordinary person through a democratic state has the right to make choices about their own constitutional future. And at some point, whether you've been here for 15 generations or one, uh, you are equally a part of that state and equally have a say about how it goes forward. Um, otherwise, what you're really saying is that there will be almost a cast of people um, who were contracted in way, way, way before anyone alive today has any memory or even connection to, and that you will always be born different on that basis. I, I think at that point, um, you know, you've probably answered your own question. Do you accept, and I'm very sorry to bring Winston Peters back into this, it wasn't my intention. The other day he was saying that, that, that Māori aren't the indigenous people of New Zealand. Would you agree with that? I just think it's such a stupid argument. I mm. mean, you're, you're basically arguing over which part of a de of a dictionary definition you want to interpret. Um, and I guess you could argue either way, but I have no interest in having that argument because um, once you go down that track, what you're really saying is that you um, believe that somebody's background and, and things that happened hundreds if not thousands of years ago are more important than what's happening today. Um, I'm in favour of treating everybody as a human being, taking people as they find them and judging them uh, on their actions today, not trying to typecast and stereotype um, people based on things that happened before they were born. This um, policy of a referendum on, I mean, it's not on the treaty. No, I mean, uh, so that, that, that it would be misrepresenting to say it's a, it's a, it's a it's referendum a, on the treaty. It so certainly what, would. What, what, what would it what would it say? Do you think the question? Well, uh, it's a good question. It, it would, to, as well, I'll answer your question first. It would be on on whether or not a piece of legislation should come into force. Um, we did this with the End of Life Choice Act. We passed the law through Parliament. It was vigorously debated. Everyone had their say. It went like, actually more debated than any other law in recent history. Um, then the question was, should this come into force or not, yes or no? It would be the same with a Treaty Principles Act. The, issue, the reason why you need a Treaty Principles Act is that the Treaty of Waitangi Act 1975 said that, that there are principles of a treaty, remained silent on what they were, delegated that to the Waitangi Tribunal. The courts, of course, got involved in interpreting um, the statutes and some of the findings of the tribunal, or at least was informed by them. Um, what that means is that for nearly 50 years now, the, the meaning of the treaty has been interpreted, or at least the principles that are kind of the, I guess, the, the, the channel through which the treaty uh, is made sense of in, mod in the modern world. Those principles have been defined by a relatively small group of people. Um, I'm not talking about Maori. I'm not talking. I'm talking about those in academia, the judiciary, and the public service. They have have really done this themselves. Experts. Um, well, you can argue that, but I'd also argue that when it comes to the future constitutional settings that people are happy with, um, the experts in a democracy are actually the people. Because if you have uh, a, a system that um, doesn't 
fit with the will of the people, then you're no longer democratic. I'm sure that President Xi would, would argue that experts are making the policy um, in China, but there's something that um, uh, just doesn't quite feel right about that. So, you know, our, our view is that every now and then the people should actually get a say about the constitutional future of their country, and right now it's long overdue. Do you not think that that would be better placed within that debate to avoid fanning unpleasant flames, which you don't wish to do, be placed in a in a wider constitutional conversation? Well, I think that's what um, passing a Treaty Principles Act through Parliament uh, would be. But, you know, I'm going to call you out on that because, you know, it's, it's just, what you say is just dripping with contempt that, you know, most people out there are somehow a bit sinister and unpleasant and they can't be allowed to have an open public discussion because they might say the wrong thing. I think that sort of attitude has led uh, to more resentment and actually eroded people's faith in our democratic institutions. Um, what I find is that overwhelmingly, People who are concerned about New Zealand's constitutional direction are people who are perfectly comfortable with the Maori language and culture, perfectly accepting that things have been done wrong in the past, but also place a very strong value on universalism, on universal human rights. Funnily enough, the things that, that animated Nelson Mandela. And I think the more that people like you say, oh, you know, I've got to be some sort of process to quarantine the, the, the discussion away from unpleasant, deplorable people, you're just playing into the hands of exactly well, the people well, that I, I don't want to see do, dominate think, the conversation. Don't you think people, whether it's you or me, or, or anyone really has a responsibility, anyone who has, you know, gets airtime has a responsibility to be really careful about these things and to ensure that we don't give sucker to not most people, absolutely not, I wouldn't suggest that, but to an element, to an underbelly, which we see every day. You just need to look at a comment thread, a comment thread on social media or on any, mm. any media outlet. So if we agree that it's a, a tiny and rather uh, you know, undesirable minority of views that are causing problems, uh, you, what you're really saying is that you're so afraid of a tiny minority of people with views you don't like that you're going to deny most people the opportunity um, to have a fulsome, honest, healthy debate about the constitutional future of their country because that's not logical either. Yeah, I guess my point would be that whether or not it was specifically described as the Treaty of Waitangi being the item that's discussed, whereas that might sit within a wider constitutional discussion. I, mean, I don't necessarily well, I, want I, to wheel Geoffrey Palmer yeah, out again, but, you know. Please don't. I'd rather you went back to Winston Peters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about, let's talk about um, housing uh, because that's a policy that came out recently. Mm. Your... Um, Position on housing is to scrap the RMA, which you'll be very hard-pressed to find anyone who's going to stand up and defend the RMA as it is, mm. um, but then to remove consents. Explain to me why Explain to me why that policy doesn't um, pave the way for Leaky Buildings 2.0. Yeah, so a couple of things. First of all, the, the resource management and resource consents that's issue one. Um, and we do think the Resource Management Act needs to be replaced and the underlying principles of the new act need to be different. The Natural and Built Environments Act, by the way, and I'm, I'm getting to your question, I just want to lay out a couple of things here. The, 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 the Natural and Built Environments Act, which replaces the RMA, has the same underlying principles that basically you can do whatever you like on your land um, so long as it complies with the council's vision which is laid out in their district plan. 
the Natural and Built Environments Act is exactly the same, um, and it's actually more complex because it introduces some novel legal terms that the courts will take years to define, and it's just going to slow down everything. So we do think that the resource management law needs a major overhaul, and the underlying principle we would introduce is property rights. You can do what you like because it's your property, and the objection to that is harming someone else's enjoyment of their property. Bear in mind that that gives powerful environmental protections because if you have property on a river and you start polluting, there's a whole lot of people downstream going to be very upset. A whole lot of people have fishing rights, very upset. So property rights are actually a powerful environmental protector, but it severely limits the range and grounds that people can object to what you do. Um, so that's number one, resource consenting. Number two is infrastructure funding. So we share half the GST on um, local council uh, uh, on construction with the local council. So for council consents, because resource consent for something, it ends up being a half million dollar build. Then you know the, the construction activity, fifteen percent of that half million, seventy five grand, they get half of that. That's thirty seven and a half grand goes to the council for saying yes. That's a way to incentivize them to get building. Um, but then to get to your question about building consents, the third kind of part of it, look, at the moment, um, first of all, we have leaky buildings that happened under councils. One of the fallouts of leaky buildings is that councils have become ridiculously cautious, but because they're so cautious, they do really detailed inspections, and the more they inspect, the more liability they take on because they're involved in the decision. And so you've got to a point where they're unbelievably conservative, they don't like new innovations, they don't like new techniques, they don't like new materials, they've just massively pushed up the price of, of doing anything. Classic example, um, you know, we, got, we, we pretty much have one type of plasterboard in New Zealand, I mean, it's insane. And the reason for that is that to use a different type of plasterboard, you need a council to sign it off. And if you're a council, you just say, well, if we say yes, we take on a risk. Um, it's a tiny risk, but why bother? If we say no, then other people will pay more for jibboard, but it's not our problem. So that's at the core of your issue. What we say is you should be able to opt out of council inspections for new, for new builds if you have insurance and the government's role is to specify the quality of that insurance so that when you hand over a new build, it comes with an insurance policy that the government has specified as, as up to scratch. Um, but of course, if you're an insurance company and someone comes along and says, look, we got this great building technique, these great materials from Japan, they build faster, they put it together in a couple of days, it's warmer, it's safer, um, you know, there's so many reasons why you do this and it's half the price then as an insurance company, you might say, yeah, we'll insure that, here's your premium. Um, and I think if we were to go down that track, would a lot of people use it? Maybe. Would some people use it? Almost certainly. I just think we need to start introducing new choices in New Zealand. You know, we're, we're so conservative and we're not getting where we need to get. We're not solving the problems we need to solve. So it's really just about, how about we try something new? How about we do a bit more innovation? It sounds it sounds to me risky. I mean, to, to, See, that's to, exactly to, what to the, I mean. To, to, the, to the jib point, point yeah. absolutely ridiculous, absurd, yeah, yeah. and we saw that in the. But isn't that bad regulation rather than too much regulation? Okay, but how do we get to good regulation then? Well, that's, a, that's over to the politicians to well, fix. Well, so, but but the, to 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 throw it over to private insurance mm. does seem like quite a drastic. Corrective. 
Not really. Um, you know, a lot of things are privately insured in New Zealand. Uh, insurance has been around for hundreds of years. It's it's not a new or scary concept. Uh, I just think that um, giving people a different option uh, might lead to better results. And you know, if we're not prepared to to try anything new, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. And and if you really think that you're safe with the councils doing it, um, you know, they they managed to screw up leaky buildings. They can do it again. So it's not even that you have a guarantee of safety right now. This, um, the, the other thing that is intriguing to me is this idea that you need, I think it's 70% of your neighbour's approval if you want to put in media yeah. density. That, is that, is that uh, David Seymour, MP for the leafy suburb of Epsom, defeating in hand-to-hand combat David Seymour, leader of the <laughs> classical Liberal Act Party? Not at it's all. It's NIMBY's charter, isn't it? Um, well, I, I suspect that, can I just explain it? Um, yeah, because uh, you might be—I think you might be criticising something that, that that's not quite what you think it is. So, first of all, your starting point is the current Auckland Unitary Plan, and I know that there are people. I would say, you know, and I've been an MP for Epsom for nine years, and I'm knocking a lot of doors and all that. And I, I do, you know, I do claim that's one thing I claim to know a little bit about is that um, people do want intensification. They, they do know that there's a shortage of housing. They do want their kids to be able to live nearby um, when they grow up. You know, So people are not opposed to more people living. They just want to know how it's going to work and what's the practical implications. I think if you actually say, look, you may currently be mixed housing suburban, but you could upzone as a street to mixed housing urban if you wanted to, which means you can basically go a story higher and put an extra um, unit per section. Um, I think that there would be some streets that, that would actually welcome that opportunity so long as they can work it through on their terms. We would also say, look, if you do that, you're going to get more money for your sections. But we would actually, as a council, reserve the right to put a targeted rate because there's going to be a need for infrastructure upgrades. So at the moment, um, you know, there's people in a street that, that want to intensify. But if you're the first person to intensify, you have to basically build out the pipes for the whole street. So everyone's waiting for someone else to do it, right? So um, what I'm talking about is, you know, quite nitty gritty street level reality of how development happens and how people react to it. And our idea of street votes is actually designed to, to navigate some of that reality. So quite apart from, you know, this your Judith Collins trope about, you know, David Seymour from Epsom battling David Seymour from ACT, um, it's actually... Is that a, I steal a, it from a, Judith Collins? You may not realise it, but you are parroting Judith Collins okay. who said a very right. similar thing. There we go. Um, the, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, well, I've, I've always <laughs> wondered about some sort of long-lost relationship. But um, so, so actually, no, I, I, we're thinking about nimble, practical ways uh, to to create win-wins. And I think, you know, the more that you let people be involved in the decision-making in their community, their street, their level, the, the more people feel that they've been listened to, that they've got buy-in and, um, you, you know, you end up with a better world as a result. David, you told Newsroom in 2021 that you would be, quote, looking at more rigorous scrutiny of candidates and I expect that will involve more testing, interviewing and background checking. I think all parties have to lift their game in that regard. Did that happen? Because you've had five candidates over two months who have withdrawn. What, mm. what, what happened? Well, first of all, yes, it did happen. Um, and if you go through them, um, and I don't want to, I sort of, 
Let me just preface this by saying I, I think it's a bit distasteful to you know chase people out of the political arena after they've left. So I'm not going to be really specific and say but this one did that. But that's fine. But if you if you think about a few different reasons someone might leave, um, some people just said they you know weren't happy with their list placing. Some people might say, look, now I'm doing this. My my family's suddenly not so keen, so I'm actually not not going to do that anymore. Um, other people might say, well, actually, look, it's it's just not what I expected generally. Um, then you know. You can imagine how one or two or three people uh, might have had reasons like that. Um, and then you say, okay, there's one person who um, made a, a LinkedIn uh, comment that I just think is absolutely unacceptable. Um, that comment was made almost two years ago. Um, we missed it, uh, and that was a failure. Um, that's the only one that I really regret. Um, the other one made uh, a comment uh, about vaccination that I actually you know, disagree with, but I don't think it's the end of the world. I think we need a bit more healthy disagreement. Um, that person left for other reasons relating to the fallout from the reporting of that. Um, so, you know, once you work through it, you start off with, oh my God, five people have left, it's the end of the world. And then once you work through it, you're like, actually, you know what? We live in a democracy where we ask people um, to give up their weekends, their privacy, their time with their family for absolutely nothing other than the fact that they're contributing to their party and our election. And, um, you know, if a few of them get in, do it for a couple of weeks and say, actually, you know what, I'm... For, uh, I'm not that keen on being number 51 on the list anymore. I, I think they should be able to drop out without like TV One doing a sort of nightly witch hunt of like, you know, this is the end of democracy as we know it. Because I, as I said to you at the beginning, I just think there's one or two more important things. But come happening. on, oh, come on. A nightly witch hunt, that's not fair. I mean, uh, oh, uh, really? you went, normally when... you've got this real sang froid. You've got an mm. ability to respond to criticisms and mm. you take them on the chin. Mm. And I, 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 you know, compared to some other other mm. other politicians... Why has this one got under your skin so much? Oh, I actually think that the way that TVNZ have made it their second story, their lead political story, I mean, on the same day that, um, you know, the Maori Party co-leader got suspended from Parliament, something that happens once a decade, um, I actually do take exception to, um, you know, that level, that's not reporting the news, that's basically campaigning. So, so I actually do have an issue with that. Um, and then, you yeah, know, so They're reasonable questions, aren't they? Um, but as I, as I said, it's it's the level of emphasis. Okay. And it, and it is. If you, I mean, I don't know how closely you've been following this, but it's on multiple nights. And you have to ask, you know, is this um, a news... Um, is this a news channel that is, is trying to report the news or a news channel that is massively disproportionately emphasising one issue when there are clearly other bigger issues happening at the same time that they didn't report. Um, so I actually do think that sometimes, um, Toby, the, 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 you know, the media need a bit of accountability too. Um, and then you put them in their place and they say, oh, well, you know, David Seymour's upset. Well, actually, yeah, I, I am upset when people don't do their job or, you know, misdo their job. Um, and uh, I think sometimes, uh, you know, the real issue is that um, maybe a few other people don't like being uh, held accountable. The yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, look, you've got to go. Last thing. Uh, Helen Clark, 
I was listening to The Ninth Floor the other day, you know, a great, hey, can great we, series. Can we talk for a moment, though, about how many awesome candidates uh, we have, like Brooke Van Velden being, you know, the, the number one rookie MP in three years, Nicole McKee doing fabulously, you know, Todd Stevenson, a guy, a high flyer from Australian corporate life, coming back to New Zealand and slotting into a Q&A interview like a pro on the first day, Andrew Hoggard, the former minister, uh, the president of the Federated Farmers. a good Farmers. recruitment, Andrew Hoggard. Hell of a great yeah. guy, yeah, yeah. I mean, Good. Karen Chua, who's just gone from strength to strength. Mark yeah. Cameron, fantastic. Yeah, you know, Cameron's you, yeah. got to find the password for that Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah I mean, not a great Twitterer, I, I'll be the first to admit. Simon Court, you know, the only guy in Parliament who's actually laid asphalt properly. Paramjeet Palmer, I mean, you know, PhD in science, successful export business, broadcasting career. Laura Trask, pharmacist, runs a business of 25 people, fantastic representative you're for government. That's just this, our top you're 10. You're doing all this without taking a breath. It's really, <laughs> yeah, that's I'm, just, I'm just, that's like, just I'm, our I'm top inc- 10. Incredible. I, mean, I, I can go through our teams as well, if you like. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's good. You did it. You did it. You've done it. That's fantastic. That's great. But look, this isn't a party political broadcast. All of your materials on your website. You've this case all the time. It's great. Let's spend at least as much time talking about the candidates you can vote for oh, think, who are I think, fantastic. I think you did very impressively <laughs> yeah. there. Listen, okay, look, you've got to go. Helen Clark. Cameron she, Luxton, he's you know, Helen builder Clark. from Tarawa. Where's he's David <laughs> Seymour, by the way? Is David the other David Seymour on your on your in your in the mix this time? Um look, um David Seymour, um not me, uh, has has motor neuron disease and um I, I actually was at his sixtieth birthday a few months ago. Oh. But um, unfortunately, David's condition um, means that he, he won't be able to stand this time. Oh, sorry to hear that. Shout out to David y- y- Seymour. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a, still a legend um, and, and always will be, but um, he, he's not up to campaigning anymore, unfortunately. Um, Helen Clark, ninth floor. She's, she's, not, said, she's not standing for us. She's not on your list no. this time. The history of New Zealand has been of Labour governments, which made a lot of progressive changes, and in order to get elected, national parties agreeing not to change too much, and life goes on. Could have been David Seymour who said those words, though. That's that's your thesis, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, you know, uh, maybe maybe Helen Clark will be voting for ACT. Who knows? But, um, you know... <laughs> I guess, I guess just to round it off, what are but, you going to do about that? What is, how are you hmm. going to stop national avoiding being a reform government? Um, I think this is, this, you know, I know this, this time is different. Um, you know, most polls at the moment show an ACT national government uh, where ACT is at least a quarter of that government, some, place, some cases closer to a third of that government. That's unprecedented. Even in the MMP era, we've always had one big party and multiple parties that were significantly, like dramatically smaller. Um, so there is a chance for real change here. And I think that ACT is in a, a very good position to break that pattern, which I, I completely agree. I think Helen Clark's right about that. Um, I just would argue that, that where there's a difference with Helen Clark's prognosis, she said progressive change. Um, you know, if you're talking about um, homosexual law reform or marriage equality or, or abortion law reform, I'm totally with Labor on the progressive change, absolutely. Um, but when it comes to the role of the government in the economy, I think Labor have expanded it beyond what's reasonable and National have failed to put it back in the box. And due to that burden of tax, government spending and regulation, uh, we've all been poorer and less able to solve a whole range of environmental and social problems than we otherwise needed to be due to that lack of ambition by National to cut back Labor's excesses in the economy. Um, And that is where ACT comes in. 
and you're willing to forego power to ensure that that happens? No, um, I'm willing to forego um, baubles and limos and titles for myself if I find and judge along with my colleagues that we are able to have more influence on the next government by sitting on the crossbenches and negotiating with them vote by vote um, than by, um, you know, actually taking the baubles for ourselves. And I think people have been pretty shocked to hear that. Oh, how could you possibly do that? We say, look, it's obviously not our preference. We'd much rather be, you know, in there tight, holding hands with the Nats and implementing a work program. And, and I think that's probably where we'll get to. But I just make the point that, you know, we're not going to be bought out by the baubles. And some people are sort of shocked by that, but I, I think it's the right thing to do. When I turned down being a minister to get end-of-life choice done, um, that was the right thing to do then, and it's still the right principle now. David Seymour, thank you very much. Thank you. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.